0: Good morning, church. How are you? I get the privilege of doing the scripture reading this morning. So uh, if you want to turn your Bibles, open up your Bible apps, or I think it might be on the screen. I don't know. Uh, But it's Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Let us pray. Lord, the events of the world can seem like wind and waves crashing against us. There's so much happening in Afghanistan. There's so much going on in the world with COVID. We can wonder what are you doing? Do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that people are suffering? Lord, come and act. Do something. Lord, give us faith. Give us hope in the midst of difficulty. May we see you at work even when it seems like the plans of the enemy continue to gain traction. When darkness seems to be the only thing in front of us. May your light continue to shine. May you continue to guide us. May you continue to give us faith and hope in the midst of difficulty. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering. We pray that you would be with them, protecting them. Um, and Lord, we, we look to you with great expectation. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.
1: Well, uh, it's good to be with you all. Um, so we're continuing through our study of the Gospel according to Mark. We've been taking it verse by verse. We're now finishing out chapter four, and uh, Sean just read the passage for you. It's one of many passages already that we've seen and that we're going to see, where, where the, the um, Sea of Galilee kind of features as like almost, almost a significant character in the story, and I realized we hadn't really looked at the Sea of Galilee in any significant way, And I don't know if this will count as significant, but I just want to mention it. So um, my family, well, actually, I'll shout out my mother-in-law that's sitting in the back right now. Susanna's mom's chilling in the back. She sent Susanna and me and her other daughter and her husband on a a guided tour of Israel a few years ago. This was before we had kids. Actually, Susanna was pregnant with our first at the time, which made it slightly less enjoyable for her because she was pretty much sick the whole time. Uh, but I was just out there having a blast. Uh, it was wonderful. So we got to tour Israel and some surrounding areas and it's really wonderful. I, I don't say that to at all push myself as some sort of expert on you know, the geography of Israel or anything like that, don't, don't hear that. But I do have some really ugly, heavily filtered circa 2016 pictures I can show you. Um, so, uh, that's not a weird crop issue in the top left, that's like the overhang of the hotel uh, when I was taking this picture and the contrast on this projector is really not doing us any favors either, is it? Nonetheless, you can see that there's water. <laughs> you can't see much, but you can see that there's water in this picture. There's foliage in the foreground, but that's the Sea of Galilee, circa 2016. You can see uh, like, like this really lush kind of Uh, foliage here and then we're pretty close on a downslope and then you see the 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 sea or the lake there and then you can kind of see the hills on the other side Um, and that's kind of where most of our story and mark has been taking so taking place so far. Um, If you go to the next picture one of the one of the museums right there has, has, uh, I assume it's still there, this boat that was discovered uh, in the 80s um, which is called the Jesus Boat. We don't know if Jesus was in this boat. <laughs> I'd say the odds are not in our favor, uh, but it is actually one of, it's the most well, well-preserved, uh, nearly fully intact boat, uh, estimated to be from between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. So like right there in the lifetime of Jesus, this is basically, we believe, a standard, fishing boat, which is about, you can't really tell in my ugly picture, uh, but it's about 27 feet long, holds about 15 people, and basically the standard boat that a Galilean fisherman would have, would have fished from. Um, and then I have one more picture. This is a, we were on a boat out on the Sea of Galilee, and this was a picture I took of another boat <laughs> for some reason. So there you go, Sea of Galilee, it's a real place. Sometimes when we, ima- when we read through these Bible stories, it seems so ancient and so removed, and we kind of put our like fairy tale filter on this thing. But it's uh, real people. We believe these are real stories rooted in eyewitness accounts um, in real places that you can go and touch and smell and see. Um, the Sea of Galilee—it's about 30, has about a 33-mile circumference. Um, it's about 13 miles long and eight miles wide, so that kind of gives you a sense of the scope. It's, it's not a huge body of water. We'd, sea might even be overstating it. You might just call it a lake. But nonetheless, um, it, it features heavily in, in this part of Israel um, and, and in the Gospel of Mark. And one thing to note for today's story is that s- storms were regular. This, the, the fact that they encountered a storm was not some kind of freak accident or whatever. Um, the s- storms were very, very common out on this lake, um, but nonetheless, the, the type of storm that came that basically has the disciples panicking, fearing for their lives, must have been incredibly severe because you've basically got a group of largely fishermen, if you remember the 12 disciples, they're largely these kind of blue-collar fishermen, um, for them to be panicking the way they were, having spent their whole lives fishing and out on these waters, and in storms, this thing must have been crazy. My point is, seasoned boaters and fishermen are not like you and I when it comes to experiencing storms on the water. And I have this really funny story. Uh, in a previous life, I was a youth pastor, and I, I, I took, uh, we took a bunch of students uh, on a short, short-term mission trip to Belize. And the last day of the trip, we were able to just kinda go and have a fun day with the kids, and, uh, and we, we basically took this, this boat out to do some like, just uh, snorkeling out by this reef. And I kid you not, like it was about a 15-minute boat ride to get where we were going. We had all our students, me and a couple other adult leaders, and a storm hit. I don't know if it was you know, a standard Sea of Galilee-type storm or not, but a storm hit. And, Like the clouds were getting darker and darker, wind was getting heavier and heavier, the rain was pelting us harder and harder. And as we kept getting, as I kept looking back and like seeing the shore kind of disappear, I was just getting more and more anxious. I was like, these kids' lives are in my hands right now. And like, things were getting crazy. Waves were started crashing over the boat and I was like kind of freaking out. And I think, if I recall, my wife was with me as well, and we were looking at each other like, What are we doing? What are we doing? Should we turn around? Should we turn around? And the kids are starting to panic, like, kids are like hanging on to things with, like, for dear life. And it was, it was like the least pleasant piece of transportation I've ever been a part of in my entire life. But I will never re- forget just like turning around and seeing the driver of this boat just chilling. He maybe even had a cigarette. <laughs> he was just like, He's just lounging. He's just getting us where we go. He does this every day. He did it every day. And, I, and that actually did bring me quite a bit of comfort to see, okay, he's not freaking out, so we'll be fine. And sure enough, within a few minutes, the thing had passed on, and the rest of the day was lovely. Um, my point is this storm that happens here in March chapter 4 is not that. The seasoned fishermen are not chilling with their cigarettes, you know, just like relaxing. They're bailing water out, expecting to die. Expecting to die. And Sean read the story for you, it's a short one. They, they wake Jesus, they accuse him of being totally indifferent to their deaths, like you don't care about us, you're just sitting here sleeping. And uh, Jesus calms the storm, of course. It's kind of a classic Jesus story. And uh, it ends with a question. So that, that's the story. And I just, I just wanna, make, or, 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 I, I wanna make three points that I think this story wants us uh, to walk away with, there may be others as well, but, but we'll have at least three today. First, I wanna point out, this story teaches us that our savior is both weak and powerful. What do I mean by that? <laughs> Keep listening. <laughs> number two, number two, that our storms will come. And number three is that genuine rest is possible through the storms. So first, our Savior is both weak and powerful. Did, is that heresy? Did I just uh, commit heresy? I don't, I don't think so. What I mean by Jesus is weak is that he's human. Jesus very human. This is another one of those stories that, that keeps us from, from kind of holding a, a Superman view of Jesus where he was kind of impervious to human weakness, human need. He's asleep. And I think we can only assume that the fact that Jesus is sleeping is because he's been working hard. I mean, he's constantly in Mark so far. He's beginning to have these crowds pressing in on him all the time. He's teaching these large groups. He's, here, he's performing miracles. He's giving little object lessons to his disciples. They're traveling largely on foot. They're going out on these boats. It's, it's an intense life that they're leaving. And Jesus rested. Jesus rested. And the fact that Jesus rested, that he found the comfy seat, he found the pillow on the boat to rest his head, reminds us of a couple of things. First, first, it's a reminder that Jesus is human. That's not, that's not something we fabricated. Um, you know, there's, there's this whole theological concept that Jesus is fully God, fully man. Uh, he's human. He's divine. He's the God-man. And it's really hard to keep those things in proper tension. Usually, people end up falling off on one side of that ditch they're falling into one of the ditches on either side of the road. They either overemphasize his divinity or overemphasize his humanity in a way that kind of negates the other. And this is just a reminder that, well, we're going to see them both in this passage right here. But, but this fact that he sleeps is a reminder that he is human. And Jesus had to rest like anyone else. Even Jesus got tired. So a little Theological reminder that Jesus could, didn't just supernaturally make himself not tired. He needed to rest. And so he did. But more than that, this, is a, this dignifies rest. This dignifies rest. And what I mean is that it reminds us that rest is a part of our good design. I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I often feel like a good night of rest, which is hard to come by with two kids, so I think I'm more acutely aware of it right now but a good night of rest is like fun. (laughs) It's like, it's so enjoyable. It's so like, to me, it's like so pleasing, so enjoyable, so fun, such a delight to just like rest well to be unencumbered uh, where you can really sleep. Um, It's good. It's not sinful to need rest or else Jesus wouldn't have needed rest. it's part of the way God designed us, that even though we get our energy from food and whatever else, like he made us so that we also have to sleep. And sleep a lot. Sleep a lot, That's yes, I agree little man. It's good stuff. You'll come to see it that way one day. Um, but more than that, um, I, th- this reminds us that sleep and, <laughs> sleep and rest is not a weakness to be overcome. And I think that is increasingly how our sort of modern and postmodern culture is viewing sleep. It's viewed as almost this technological problem that we can overcome if we like, you know, have the right sleep techniques where if you really, if you understand your body, you only need like two hours of sleep and then you can function and be more productive. Or if you just have the right chemical cocktail of caffeine and increasingly like speed, you know, prescribed speed, you can, you can stay awake. Um, And sleep, tiredness is not a medical problem to be overcome. I mean, it can't, there, there are medical problems associated with sleep, of course. But on a basic level, sleep is natural. Sleep is good. Sleep is a gift. Jesus reminds us of that. This passage shows us Jesus slept. And that's important. It's important to note. He had human weakness. But in the very same passage... We get the flip side of that coin, which is that Jesus isn't only human who got weak, who got tired, but he's also divine and powerful. Um, In in the ancient Hebrew worldview, the seas, the seas were associated with chaos, with danger, with disaster. Um, Sometimes they were even associated with evil spiritual powers because they're so untamable because the idea of going, going out on the sea was such a like, ooh, well, we don't have control here. So many began to think that they were sort of controlled by the demons or the devil himself, dark spiritual powers uh, that could not be tamed by anyone. The sea was an imminent threat to anyone because it was untamable. Only God was believed to have power over the sea. And that, that bit of background is important for, for catching what Jesus is communicating by even choosing to do this miracle in his sovereignty. And note that Jesus doesn't have to work up a crazy spell or some incantation, some formula of words. He doesn't have to you know, do some magic ritual or whatever. It's just simple, stated authority. Jesus speaks to the wind and the sea like a parent to a child. One commentator pointed out, she said that even though the disciples didn't, the wind and the sea knew the voice of their creator and master here. That's right on. The same one who spoke their existence into being was now speaking from this little boat on this little lake. The same voice that had authority over them. This story is telling us indirectly that the voice of Jesus is the same voice of the creator God who spoke all of creation into existence and who subdued and cultivated the wild waters of creation to form the land for his people. And we're probably also meant to think of the power of the same God who moved through Moses to part the Red Sea during the Exodus. That God is here somehow sleeping (laughs) in our midst he's in our midst, he's in the flesh somehow. However you work that out, that seems to be what's happening here. And I just wanna pause and note, like this is one of those classic Christian stories, You know, everybody's heard it as a child or whatever, plenty of people who aren't disciples of Jesus have heard this story. Oh yeah, I heard that thing about Jesus calming the storm. We can get numb to the fact that this is a crazy claim. People don't have this power and As Christians, we need to (laughs) acknowledge that and recognize that this is something amazing. If it weren't for these eyewitnesses who and even the, the very family members of Jesus who saw and heard of these things, who ended up believing that this man was God in the flesh to the point where they would lay down their lives to die for him because of these beliefs. You shouldn't believe that. I shouldn't believe that. You should believe it, but without the eyewitness, like this is not something that if you just hear on the news, man, calm, see, that you should take it face value, right? This is a wild claim, but it is the claim that the scriptures are making. I believe it. I want you to believe it about him. Um. And this is just another reminder that Jesus' miracles, they're, they're loaded with theological significance, all of them, really. They validate his teaching. So Jesus has lots of things to teach on. You read the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving us a whole new ethic for how to be a true human. Well, what gives you the authority, Jesus, to speak like that? These miracles, in part, do that. They say, no, this is the one who can calm the sea with his voice. So when he gives you an ethical teaching, you ought to listen, and vice versa. His teachings help us contextualize and understand what in the world is going on with these miracles. There's a beautiful interplay there. That's enough about that. Jesus is divine and powerful, but he's also human and weak, and that is part of the good news and his glory. That's point number one. Point number two. Point number two I think that this, this uh, passage reminds us of is that our storms will come. In this case, a truly terrifying storm appears. I mean, these, these guys all thought they were, they were dead. They really did. Do you not care that we are dying, Jesus? That's where their minds went. And this is a a reminder to us, it's meant to be a reminder to us that we cannot avoid the storms. And on the most literal level, we live in a world full of actual storms, actual, like, natural disasters that wreak havoc in our world. Just recently, Haiti experienced the horrors of an earthquake and a hurricane back-to-back, utterly heartbreaking and devastating. Um... We're told that the west coast itself is due for a massive earthquake. Right, everybody heard that? That good piece of good news? <laughs> Portland might be underwater uh, anytime. This side of the fall, the whole world is, is this dangerous, this dangerous place. It's a groaning place. That's language that, that, that Paul puts to this. Creation is groaning for its restoration. It's groaning, and that doesn't mean we become indifferent to the suffering of, of all these things. We are right to grieve any suffering that comes from the danger and the fallenness of this world, but the point is we can't avoid it. We think we're going to avoid being impacted by those things, we're, we're wrong. The Bible doesn't want us to think that way. It wants us to, to acknowledge and accept that reality. That's just literal storms, but I, I think it is fair to to apply this, this text to bring this concept into our metaphorical storms as well, which is often where people go with this, and I think, I think it's right. The point is, tragedies of all kinds come for us. Our important plans get foiled. Death comes for us and for everyone we've ever loved at some point. Conflicts, controversies, losses, pains, we never know when they're going to strike, but this passage reminds us that they will strike. And the longer you're alive, the more of them you have to endure. And it's, it's not right. It's not the way things were supposed to be, but it is the world we live in nonetheless. And the disciples, they had a very human and recognizable reaction to the storm. We've already mentioned it. But they accuse Jesus of indifference toward their lives. Jesus, you don't care. You don't care what we're going through. And I'm assuming that most of us in this room have accused God of this same indifference at some point in the middle of, of some storm. If we've been following him long enough, at some point, this, I think this comes out of most of our mouths. And if our mouths don't have the courage to say it, it's in, it's in there. It's in there. You don't care. You don't care about what we're what we're suffering. You don't care about what we're going through. If they only knew the truth. If we did. Maybe one of the most overquoted verses in the Bible. These verses always risk becoming trite, but let's hear it with fresh ears if we can. John 3.16 because it's full of glorious truth for the fact is God so loved the world that he gave his only son he gave him that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus knows within a a couple years' time he will be the one that perishes in their place that they wouldn't have to finally, ultimately, eternally. It does not really ever feel like it. But we have to declare with what the Scriptures declare that somehow... In God's economy, however it works out, and I'm not gonna pretend to know how it all works out, I'd be lying to you if I said that I did, but somehow in God's economy, the presence of danger and death and sickness and whatever other horrible thing you can think of in this life is not evidence that God doesn't care about you. It feels that way. It feels that way all the time for most of us when we're in the middle of these things. But this passage is saying that somehow, that's not the case. That he cares more than any of us could actually even imagine. God the Father cares to the point of doing everything necessary, even giving himself, even giving his son to undo that death. So that's number two, our storms will come. It's not a fluke that they experience hardship. Again and again, Jesus is going to tell his disciples to expect life to be hard, both because they follow Jesus and for reasons that have nothing to do with Jesus, just because it's the sort of world we live in. That brings us to point number three. Which I think is what this another thing this passage teaches us is that genuine rest is possible through these storms. Jesus slept through the storm, <laughs> and I guess I guess we're to assume that if the disciples hadn't panicked and woke him up, he would have just stayed asleep, which is pretty funny. And you imagine them, like him waking up later and like Jesus, we just experienced the worst storm of our life, and he's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Good job. Thanks for keeping us afloat. Jesus was sleeping. You know, sleep is often a sign of trusting God. Psalm 4.8. Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will make me dwell in safety. And I don't know if you've ever experienced periods of like insomnia and like anxiety around sleep. I, I've experienced a few. They usually have, have, uh, have come around like Seasons where I've just been extremely anxious about different things. Some of them have been ministry-related. Some of them have been family-related. Um, but there have been periods where for – I haven't – it hasn't been super long-term. It's, it's often usually around a month, at least in what I've experienced, where maybe I could – maybe it's just being unable to fall asleep. Maybe it's waking up at 2 a.m. and just feeling panicked and not being able to go back to sleep. Um – but I, I, I've been, a, and you know, it could, for many people, it could just be a physical or, or whatever issue. But for me, these have always been, I've been acutely aware that, like, I am anxious about this thing. My mind is racing. And often it's just out of this refusal to trust God that the thing is going to be taken care of. So, I, I, it, it's so hard to sleep well when you're dealing with anxiety. And so the converse is true here. The fact that Jesus is asleep even in the midst of this just shows you what kind of faith and trust in the p- perfect plan of God he had, he could know. Today's not the day we're dying. I know, what my, I, know where, I know where we're going. I know what my ministry is gonna, I know what's gonna unfold. I can rest now. And there are, there are ways to misinterpret Jesus's actions by sleeping or even his words to them when he he rebukes them. He says, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? We can misinterpret that. One way to misinterpret it is to think that he's sort of teaching us that his disciples ought to have kind of a reckless indifference towards death. Like, whatever, if you're in danger, like don't do anything, just lay down and deal with it and you know, whatever. I don't think that's the lesson. I don't think we're meant to have a recklessness or an indifference toward our own lives or the lives of those around us. By the same token, another way to misinterpret this is this passage often gets wrapped into sort of prosperity, theology, schemes, you know? Whatever storm is going on in your life, Jesus is just gonna handle it, he's gonna deal with it, don't worry about it, no big deal. You've heard that before? This passage is not teaching us to expect earthly prosperity through whatever comes. Again, think of the life of Jesus. He was spared in this case, but he's still going to the cross. The disciples were spared in this case, but each of them, as far as we know from tradition, died martyrs' deaths for being faithful to Jesus. There's going to be more weeping in the story. The answer is not always. Tidily wrapped up. So that's not what this is teaching either. For what is it teaching? I think fundamentally the idea is that we can trust. We ought to be able to trust. We ought to pray and beg God in his spirit for the kind of trust to be put into us that whatever comes, you can rest knowing you're with the king. Whatever comes, you can rest knowing that his purposes will prevail. And even if, and even when, that means deep suffering, even death. Somehow, again, don't ask me to explain it, but somehow, even that tragic story will get a happy ending in the resurrection for those in Christ where he promises he will wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. So in the words of the Apostle Paul again, he says, he puts it this way, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If this is my time to go, so be it. I know that I'll go get to be with with the Father and all of his people. But if I'm to live another day, that's Christ more opportunity to live with him and for him and to share and proclaim his good news. You can rest knowing that whatever comes, we don't know the future, but we can rest knowing we're with the king. I think that's why he's on to them. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith in me? You're with me. You're with me right now. I don't think Jesus rebuked them because they wanted to survive, but because they didn't trust the purposes of Jesus in the midst of the struggle. So, we're gonna end with the same question the disciples asked in verse 41. The disciples, after seeing all this, they were filled with fear, with great fear. And they said to one another, who is this? Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And we've already given one answer to this question. He's God in the flesh. He's the only person that can speak to the waters and they obey. That he can speak to the waters and they say, ah yes, the voice of my creator. He's the Son of God. We could answer it other ways. There are lots of ways you could answer that question. You could say he's the Messiah. He's the long-promised king of Israel in the world. He's the one who's bringing the kingdom. Say he's a divine teacher. He's a miracle worker. These things are true, if incomplete. But there's one other answer I think that this passage wants us to not miss, even though it's implicitly. A few commentators helped me see this. I wasn't sharp enough to catch it on my first first pass through this. But once I did, it stuck out as so profound. And that's that he's the true and better Jonah. You remember the story of the prophet Jonah? Jonah was this prophet who was given the task to to take a message of repentance to the most evil empire, the most violent, oppressive people, uh, and specifically the capital of Nineveh people who were known for hanging the skins of their enemies on the wall, this evil, evil people. And he was supposed to go tell them to repent. That if they did repent, they could, mercy would be given. And Jonah didn't wanna do it. And I think if, if, you don't, if you can't acknowledge that you don't have a little bit of sympathy with Jonah there, I don't think you're being honest. Like, God, you want them to repent? You're gonna provide them mercy? Them? And he refuses, and he goes the opposite direction, and he ends up on this boat. Remember the story? He ends up on a boat. What happens when they're on the boat? Anybody? (laughs) The storm. Raging, raging storm. And where's Jonah? He's asleep. Jonah's asleep in the boat. And all the other people on the boat are freaking out, and they're bailing water, and they're like, we're all gonna die, they're losing their minds. And they wake Jonah up and they talk to him and they find out that uh, you know, he's this prophet, he shares with them, they cast lots, they figure out this is happening because of Jonah. And Jonah, basically it turns out he's guilty because he's running from God, he's, he's endangering all of their lives on this boat and he says, okay, you know what, here's what you gotta do, you gotta take me, you gotta throw me in the water and you'll be fine. So you know what they do? <laughs> they say, okay. And they're solemn about it. They like pray and they like don't want any blood on their hands or whatever, but then they throw Jonah in the water and the water's calm and the boat's fine, presumably. So most of the story is incredibly similar up until this point where Jonah's hurled into the sea. And Jesus isn't. Or is he? Not yet, but it's coming. This, I think this connection to the Jonah story is quite important because it reminds us that the, the time is going to come where Jesus is going to be thrown into the sea, uh, but he's not going to be spared the way that Jonah was. Jonah's, Jonah was rem- miraculously saved, this freak thing where this giant fish comes and swallows him up and preserves him, and he's, he's preserved quite literally by the hand of God. But Jesus... Jesus is gonna be thrown to the cross. And though Jonah, Jonah's disobedient caused this storm, Jesus is the perfectly obedient one who gets thrown to the storm. He gets, he gets captured, he gets imprisoned, he gets beaten. He gets ultimately crucified. This public torture, public execution, the humiliation of hanging naked, bloody, with his ribs exposed. As Tim Keller put it, when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly. That's the whole reason he came. Into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. And he didn't work it so that he would be spared. He took it all to the bitter end. He died to defeat death. And the promise that he gives us, the promise of the resurrection is that one day, and this, this, I mean, this sounds like pie in the sky stuff, that's okay, that's, that's okay if it strikes you that way, but it's why we believe what we believe. The promise of the resurrection is that one day, every storm will finally be calmed. That's what we're hoping for. And if that's not true, what else do we have? But if that man walked out of that tomb by the power of God and he said, this is a foretaste of a day that's coming finally, when natural disasters are over and sin and violence and death is over, they all become distant memories in the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is presiding over. Then the hand of God will wipe every tear then there's hope. And if that's true, again, in the middle of these storms, it doesn't make them painless. It doesn't make them not excruciating. It doesn't mean we're not going to have deep, dark days, but it means we can trust that the answer, this is not happening because Jesus doesn't care that we're perishing. He perished for us, that we might never perish again one day. So that's good news, I take it. I take it there's not better news in this world than the fact that Jesus was thrown to the storm, that ours might be calmed. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day, every storm will be calmed, promises the king, amen? Let's pray.